This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. A lot of big companies have come out with some big talk about what they're going to do to address systemic racism in the U.S. One big company is Bank of America, and they've made a big move, a billion dollars. Systemic racism has created a a racial wealth gap in America. Ebony Thomas is the Racial Equality and Economic Opportunity Initiatives Executive at the Bank of America. One of the elements of this billion-dollar commitment is to close that racial wealth gap. Coming up in this episode of Colors... Two important guests. Our stories and our um, our pain has been largely discounted. Kimi Yam, a journalist from NBC Asian America. I feel that that has largely been what we've seen in media for decades. And Albert Shimabukuro, a WTOP desktop assistant, says it's time to talk more broadly about racism. I had a friendship with uh, a Korean family, and um, I met the grandfather uh, a year later, and he speaks to me in Korean. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean. He asked me what my ethnicity was, and I said, I'm Japanese, and then he spits on me. He yelled at his grandkids. He goes, you never play with him again because he's the one who killed our people. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Core and I'm white. I'm JJ Green and I'm black. And welcome to Colors. JJ, before we get to our guest, uh, first of all, hi. Hello. Uh, I, I need to get something off my chest. Okay. And uh, what the hell is wrong with the police in Minnesota? I, I, I just have to say that this just is unfreaking believable yes. that this has happened again in the Minneapolis area. I know it's not the knee on the neck, but first of all, um, why would the police even want to use a tase to begin with all the time? I mean, my God, if the cops don't go out by themselves or at least two of them with one 20 year old kid, they probably don't even need a taser. Second of all, if you're a veteran police officer, how do you not know that the taser is on your left hip and the gun is on your right hip and that they feel different? I mean, this is not a rookie cop. I just and thirdly, let me ask this. If this 20 year old behaved the exact same way and was white, would he have been shot? I, I mean, we don't know the answer to that, but what is wrong with them? I'll tell you, brother, I have not been able to rest since this happened. It's not not quite the same as what happened with George Floyd, but there's very little, close, very, very little difference emotionally for me. Me too. Um, and I, I feel you, man. I, I'm telling you, I feel you because this is uh, every day for me. 
Yeah, I, I just had to get that off my chest. It just—it's been—I've been bugging me, and I, I thought, well, I, I'm going to have to. Yeah, I'll calm down, but I just—that just—I look at that and go, what on earth? And I—I I see that she's been charged and all that, but yeah. I mean, the kid's dead, so yeah, <laughs> no trial. You know, she's going to get one, but again, no trial for him. You know, so yeah. Um, anyway. Anyway, let's move on. I, I, I just wanted to get that. I'm glad you did. Moving on. We have two guests today. First, Kimmy Yam, a journalist with NBC Asian America. And we have Albert Shimabukuro. He's a WTOP desktop specialist. First, Kimmy Yam is an award-winning Asian journalist. She's best known for her work covering policy and legislation, as well as her deeply reported features on complex issues impacting the Asian American community. 2016, she launched the HuffPost's Asian Voices section, one of two mainstream media verticals dedicated to the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Today, she's a reporter for NBC's Asian America section, and her goal is to uplift communities that have largely been forgotten by the media ecosystem. And she's joining us today. Kimmy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know, um, this is what we do on our program. We talk about what's happening. We talk about what a lot of people don't want to talk about. And we talk about it in a way oftentimes that people don't want to hear. We, we're just blunt. We're to the to the point, And we just deal with it. So we know that America is going through another one of these cycles of hate against our, our Asian American brothers and sisters. And you're one of those people that's in the fire right now. And I'm really sorry you are. But uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say today to start this program off. Yeah, um, thank you so much uh, for having me and really listening, um, you know, to these issues. I think that for so many Asian Americans, our stories and our um, our pain has been largely discounted uh, by the mainstream media. And I, I think that, you know, we even in, you know, the beginning when we were working on the railroads. And I, I don't know if you guys know about this, uh, the photo called the last spike. Um, yes. Which was, you know, it's 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 all white men celebrating the final spike going into the transcontinental railroad, which was largely built by Chinese workers. And there's not a single Chinese person in this photograph, um, they were not included, even though they did most of the work. Uh, and I, I feel that that has largely been, um, you know, what we've seen in media for decades, where the stories of Asian Americans have not been told. Um, and a lot of the stereotypes and tropes have persisted. And so we, we come up today, um, you know, we see a lot of these hateful attacks and violence and pain. And I think it's been surprising for a lot of people, but it's it, it hasn't been that surprising for Asian Americans. We've seen it for a long time. Maybe this is one of the few times that other people have acknowledged it. But it's it's definitely not been the first time that we've felt these kinds of attacks. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's uh, it is jarring, you know, kind of seeing in, in a time of pandemic when we're already kind of, uh, you know, everyone's dealing stressed. with so many anxieties, exactly stress. Um, and it's both, you know, physical and you know, the, the financial stress um, that people feel at this moment, too. I mean, there's there's so much. And on top of that, 
you know, being being fearful of one's own physical safety. I mean, all almost all marginalized communities deal with some degree of this. Um, but seeing that it's tied to this very racist link between the pandemic um, and, you know, that that idea that Asian Americans and Asian people carry disease, um, that's I, I mean, that's a lot for people to deal with. I mean, it, is that is that where this this wave has come from in the last year? Is it because of the pandemic or because you said you've been feeling this for years? Yeah, what we're seeing right now, I think, um, and speaking with experts, there's kind of a confluence of factors uh, that lead up to um, the violence that we're seeing, uh, you know, in in the media or publicized in the media. Um, some of it is definitely that link, that very racist idea that Asian Americans are responsible for this virus, um, and then part of the other. Uh, you know, the other um, violence, it's I'm, difficult I'm sorry. to say. I, I, I just have to ask this. Is, I, you're telling me that people that are, are are lashing out at Asian Americans think that Asian Americans are the people who started the virus? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, That's just stupid. I mean, it, it, yes, it is very stupid. <laughs> it is very stupid. But even, you know, I, I think um, there's also been this idea that you know, oh, Asian Americans are not responsible. When when people want to, um, you know, beat back this type of racism, they say, you know, Asian Americans are Americans and they are not uh, responsible for any of this and you shouldn't attack them because of this. Um, but, you know, it does also give off this kind of problematic idea that Asians in general or Asians from Asia, that's fair game, you know? Um, and so... At the end of the day, I think there there needs to be a lot more education around, um, you know, wh what this virus is and why people have this, you know, misdirected anger yeah. towards certain people. Because I, I, I personally, you know, and speaking with so many different experts, it's just it's clear that, you know, attacking anyone <laughs> at all is not OK. Just pure yeah. just you know that's just not okay um whether they're from asia whether they're from the city of wuhan or whether they're you know asian american i mean none of that is permissible yeah well so you know here's the thing the stuff that you are talking about is well documented and mm -hmm. you know it i know it chris knows it and we've talked about it numerous times on this very podcast. You know, you talk about the, the railroad. You know, one of our listeners and friends, Angeli Chong, told us this story last year. Um, and, you know, so a couple of other people have told us the story since then, but knew about it al already before. And the thing is this, the people that need to hear and need to read and need to understand this are not reading. They're not listening. And they're not hearing. There are people that are out there that have their heads in some kind of conspiracy situation or they're listening or watching or following something or someone that is dead set on spreading these lies. And that's what the real issue is. So back to what you were talking about before, what needs to be done is media needs to get busy with this. So mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you this question. Do you have any thoughts on how that can happen? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's a great point. I think um, in speaking with some experts, they've pointed out how, 
you know, a lot of the defaulting to these beliefs has a lot to do with the fact that none of our histories and pain and struggle have been, you know, learned in the classroom. They're not really part of the curriculum. If I mean, if you recall growing up, do, did you ever learn? Do you remember learning about Asian American history? I mean, it was probably well, the only the only page. part that 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 I remember uh, from history is the. Um, uh, the camps that were set up for Japanese Americans during Internet World camps. War II. That, that, mm-hmm. Yes, and that that was taught in history. But you're right; the rest of it pretty much ignored. Well, I was fortunate yep. enough. I was fortunate enough to hear the story about the railroad because of the school that I went to and some of the teachers that were there. But it was very, very minimal. You know, yeah. right? I mean, that's a great point too. It's it really takes you know a teacher. It's probably of Asian background or someone who takes an extra initiative to make sure that people know about this history. It's not going to be automatically in you know our history books. It's not going to be in our public schools. I mean, growing up, I didn't know anything about my own history because it just simply was not taught in public schools. Um, and Kimmy, let when, me ask you a favor. Mm-hmm. Can you stop until yes. the siren? stops or are you outside no but the sirens in new york city are very i was going to say it's new york (laughs) (laughs) and they're always going (laughs) yeah it's been waiting for you all right so pick it up please all right um you know for me it was very very uh rare that i would hear about my own history um going to public school because it just wasn't part of the curriculum and if you heard about it it was just you know a teacher probably went the extra mile um, and that was very rare too for someone to do that and so when people default to a lot of these beliefs it's because there's absolutely no baseline knowledge um, of who we are that it's just the predominant um, like yeah. ideas of what a group is um, you know, are just flooded into the zeitgeist and I think that a lot of you know experts say without this foundation, of facts and truth about who like a three-dimensional idea of what a group is it is very easy to default to that um these like racist tropes so in media i think it's it's important that newsrooms don't treat people of color like an aside like oh maybe um like i do think some newsrooms have this issue where they cover issues um around people of color as an added bonus it's not part of their daily news diet and that really shouldn't be the case i mean like if people need to understand that that people of color are america you know it's not like an added little sprinkled on section of america it's very much part of the fabric of what this country is and you're missing but well the one the one i'm going to push back on that a little bit all three of us have been in journalism for our careers and we all know how it works news works in cycles and uh when a 20 year old black kid is shot in a suburb of minneapolis that's going to take precedent over the last time that there was some uh that woman that was older uh, asian woman who was stomped on in new york it's just going to beat it because it's fresher news and it's you know that's the headline and that so in order for i mean unfortunately in order for the, for any of this to become a headline, something terrible has to happen, like the, the shootings in Atlanta. Otherwise, it isn't going to get covered. And, you know, we all three know that that's what we do. That's what we do for a living. I right? would I would disagree with that okay. completely because because, you know, I think that comes from, a, you know, we, we have to think about how 
one group's struggle doesn't take away from another group's struggle. And one group's pain and acknowledging that will never take away from another group's pain and the acknowledgement of that. I also would say that all of these issues are so intersectional. When we're talking about Asian hate, and it also relates to what the solutions are, and it also relates to policing. And then a lot of these ideas, I mean, the, the absolute police brutality that we've been seeing toward the black community, there's also been a lot of examples of solidarity. And then there's also another conversation about anti-blackness within the Asian American community. Mm -hmm. There are so many links between all these different issues. And I think they're all worth talking about. And, you know, to see one tragedy happen doesn't mean that we shouldn't cover the other tragedies because one's a big, bigger news story. I think they're all worth time. But we've been trained to think that there's only enough room for one group at a time and so that's so harmful that's there's, there's exactly, always going to be enough that's exactly what i want to talk to you about that's what i want to hear from you how do we undo this what's the solution to fixing this on nbc nightly news when you look at the news you look at the stories and you see maybe a couple minutes for each story maybe one minute 45 seconds for a package or <clears throat> any other news outlet when you're looking watching television news it's very telescoped, very abbreviated. And it's very mm. similar in our situation on radio. People are constantly, it's a breathless scenario where people are constantly trying to keep up and making sure that they're doing everything that their competitors are doing. Does it, does it seem to you that what we need to do is stop competing and start actually covering the news? I mean, I mean, what you guys are talking about right now today, I mean, you found time to talk about this, right? You, you found time, you understood that this is an important issue, and you found time to talk about it. I think it's very important um, that also newsrooms hire people of color that look like our community, because sometimes that is the only way people will understand something is a big issue. You know, it's, I, I remember, and I don't have this issue in my newsroom now, um, in my newsroom now, I come in and if I think something is a really important topic, I'm never going to get pushback from people saying it's not worth covering. I'm never going to get that. But I used to come from a newsroom where that was a conversation. Well, we all do. And yeah. 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 And that was harmful because, I mean, the proof is even when you're looking at a just completely, you know, things that really shouldn't matter, but they do matter in a business sense. Right. Like like traffic. My my section, um, NBC Asian America, was the fastest growing section on NBC, and they took a chance and they said, all these things do matter. Go ahead and cover them. Um, and it proved that people wanted to learn about them. I think there's a misconception that um, audiences are not ready for these topics or don't want to read about them. Where, where... How how do we know that they don't want to read about them where, if they're not even introduced to them in the first place you know so where do we watch this where do we where, where do we consume nbc asian america uh so i'm all digital it's on nbc news um i you know i i do uh you know if M msnbc needs me for um analysis or anything i do that too um and it's been pretty frequent uh because of the events happening but i do think you know as we move towards kind of a more digital age and newsrooms um you know start updating and really having this reckoning about what this new kind of uh new generation of journalists really look like 
they have to understand, you know, they have to hire people who look like America or else you're going to you're going to fall into these more archaic models that we've all, you know, we've all dealt with. We've all dealt with, you know, newsrooms which were majority white and they're likely just a very small section of uh, minority journalists who are probably responsible for all those stories. Um, and the rest of the newsroom was still fairly uh, blind to it. We, we can't have that. We, we need a new, you know, a new model where it really looks like America. And I think that we're moving towards it. I think I feel very privileged to come into work every day. And, and you know, if I need to write 2000 words on an Asian American subject, I'm never going to get pushback on that. And I don't think people should, you know, the marginalized communities are not in a side. They're definitely part of America. They're part of the zeitgeist. They're part of what we should be looking at every single day. Yeah, but I, it, it's true for, for your particular area, they're never going to give you pushback. But the question is, is it going to make it to uh, NBC Nightly News? I mean, I don't work in broadcast, so it's very difficult for me to say. But I also think that yeah, but when we talk story, about that's, that's what I mean. In other words, in other words, for it to get wider um, viewership, it, 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 you have to push it. All. I mean, I agree with you about the digital part. Obviously, we're doing this. This is essentially, I mean, it's a podcast, but it's uh, it's not being broadcast in the same way that we've done our other jobs. But in order for it to get wide circulation, it needs to be on the on the big one. And that's the NBC Nightly News, for example, or on one of the um, Dateline type programs. Um, and that question is, is anybody listening there? I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I do think that when and there's definitely been producers who reach out to me and are so kind about that. And, you know, there I'm always encouraged to talk about these stories. Um, broadcast is just broadcast is a world that I personally don't understand quite that much because, you know, I didn't I, working in newsrooms. I didn't grow up in that age. Um, but also this is this, you know, assumes saying that, you know, that's the big stage assumes that most people still get their news that way. When I think that a lot of people are moving towards other forms. I mean, you guys probably have a ton of listeners on podcasts and podcasts are doing really well. Radio is doing tremendously. I mean, you know, digital is doing really well. And I know very few millennials who read news outside of digital. So I, I think that all these need to be considered. Okay. Um, and all of it needs to be filled with our stories. Okay, now let's get back to the heart of this matter. So we know that we've got some work to do on the media front, and we've got to get our houses in order, because let's be clear about it, our own broadcasts, radio, and television organizations are not, not doing uh, enough of what they need to do right now in terms of being more diverse. And to their credit, to our credit here, there's a lot of activity underway to kind of fix that. But talking about the issue here, this is not acceptable what's taking place with the, you know, the hate campaigns that are going on all over the place. So, Kimmy, your message to the people out there who know people who aren't listening, who aren't reading, who aren't paying attention, what's your message to them? You know, I, I think my message is, is just they're Asian Americans, I think, for so long because our stories haven't been told are, are very have been reduced to very flattened stereotypes and tropes. 
And there's very little humanizing us in the media space. There's very little humanizing us on TV. There's very little humanizing us in films, in movies, all of that. And so to take a second and think about how, you know, perhaps there is a story beyond what people are seeing. You know, if you if you really, really drill down to what a sing, you know, what each and every human being really looks like, they cannot be summed up to these very archaic stereotypes that people still have. Um, when the news broke about the Atlanta, the horrifying shootings, I saw Twitter flooded with jokes about happy endings. That's oh. taking that's taking a community's pain oh. and making it a punchline. And that should never happen, right? That that's that should no. never ever happen. And you know, that that needs to change. I think that the way in which we talk about this community and all these experts are saying, you know, it's never just semantics. You might think you're making a joke, but all these jokes lead to and stem from that same horrifying place that led to those shootings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is the problem, Kimmy, with social media and it's why I don't I don't do Twitter, I don't do Facebook, I don't do any of it because I would I would um, not be able to contain myself from calling these people out. Um, and that's been a real problem lately. That, that may be why there's so much anger, JJ, is because of all the social media stuff. I mean, it's a part of it. President of the United States mainly for four years was communicating with the people of the United States on Twitter, and that's that's just not the way we do business. That's silly. And and this because you can any idiot with a phone can get on Twitter and say anything <laughs> they want to, and mm-hmm. it apparently doesn't matter. Well, I can tell you this: as a journalist who a black journalist who works at the intersection of race and national security. Stay tuned to that uh, story on Mr. Trump and why he was doing what he was doing. Uh, and I can tell you this, and I'm not going to take away from our show today, but you, you're exactly right about the whole social media piece being a distraction. But there is an obvious method to that madness, and it has a lot to do with some things that are going on today in terms of sanctions against Russia. For another time, for another day, but you're yeah. exactly right about that. We Kim, could go down a rabbit hole on this real quick, couldn't we? Yeah, so. Kimmy, um, anything you want to add that we haven't asked you about that you think is important today? Um, you know, I, I guess I'd just like to emphasize that, you know, over the course of reporting this, and I, I started reporting, I mean, I've been reporting on the Asian American community for years, but specifically the hate um, that's risen alongside the pandemic. I think that there's much of the pushback and a lot of the racist uh, things that people say kind of come from this idea that all of this is semantics. And people will say, you know, saying terms like China virus is just semantics or, you know, things like this. Um, And time after time, uh, I've gotten so many different scholars, activists, experts who've all noted that nothing is ever just semantics. There was actually a study that came out that after um, Mike Pompeo had used that term and after uh, Paul Gosar had used that term, a day later, there was a giant spike in the usage of these very xenophobic uh, terms. And while America had been trending toward accepting Asian Americans as Americans for over a decade, that trend reversed in the matter of days because of the giant uptick in the use of this term. Um, and, And so I think it's very important to note that, you know, we might think that we're saying 
something just off the cuff. We might think that uh, we're saying, you know, just a, a, a random Asian joke or whatever, and it doesn't matter. Um, but there's there's actual research and evidence that shows that it does, in fact, influence attitudes towards an entire marginalized group. And so, you know, I, I think thinking about how we cover these stories and how we absorb these stories and how we talk about them um, is important. I, I don't think words should be discounted. And I guess that's kind of my remaining uh, lesson here. Kimmy, thank you. We really appreciate you, you today. Thank you so much. When we come back, Albert Shimabukuro's moving story. I had a, uh, a friend, friendship with uh, a Korean family and um, their grandfather. I met the grandfather uh, a year later and he speaks to me in Korean. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean. He asked me what my ethnicity was. And I said, I'm Japanese. And then he spits on me. Oh, coming up in 90 seconds. You're listening to Colors. My name is John Echohawk. I'm uh, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. I'm an attorney and executive director of the Native American Rights Fund, and we're headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. The way my family name happened uh, goes way back to uh, uh, my ancestors and one in particular who uh, uh, got his Indian name. And when it's uh, translated, it uh, it's translated into Echo Hawk, but uh, that's kind of the uh, short version of uh, of why uh, he got the name, and that is that uh, he was he was such a uh, such a great man, such a great leader, such a great warrior, that uh, all of his deeds were echoed across the land. And so uh, they said, "Okay, well, let's call him Echo Hawk." Uh, as you probably know, uh, you know, the reason they called us Indians is because uh, Columbus thought he was an Indian. We're basically uh, uh, people native to uh, to America, native to this land. I remember when I first started uh, uh, my law practice, I, I would uh, be some places and, uh, and I would have people say to me, you look like an Indian. Are, are you an Indian? And yeah, I didn't know you. You people were still around today. I still have Indian people tell me that that same story. Uh-huh. So and it, it differs it differs in different parts of the country, but there's still some people who don't understand that. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. One of our colleagues, Albert Shimabukuro, is joining us. This happened because he and I were having a conversation regarding this situation we've seen swell across the country. And um, I know that Chris knows Albert, and we all know each other. uh, And we all wanted to have Albert talk about his experience on this program because that's, I believe, the only way we get to deal with this, by putting our arms around the whole problem. So, Well, and, you know, it's funny you say this began with a conversation with Albert around the office. It, that's how you and I began talking about this years ago, just because exactly. we were working together. We started talking about it and we both are interested in race relations. So yeah. uh, it's, you, you, you're coming into very familiar territory. Yeah. So Albert, would you just tell us about your background and what your issue is today? 
I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm a second generation Japanese American or Okinawan American. Uh, both my parents are from Okinawa. Um, moved here to the Washington, D.C. area in 2005. Uh, been here since. Lived everywhere from Maryland, Virginia, D.C. Um, but home is still in the uh, Orange County area of California. I had a lot of frustrations with the media as a whole. Um, not describing um, the the crimes that were committed against uh, the Asian community. And it, another thing about about how people were being discussed, it was very um, grouped as a Asian American or not identifying any specific ethnicities in particular. Um, even today, you're still looking at um, the, the people who are victimized. They don't describe what actual race they are, and are they American, uh, Asian Americans? Are they Asians from that are visiting? Um, it really doesn't give a, a good background on what's going on. And so, when you're lumping generic information in, it, it, it still alienates and does not give any real context of who actually got hurt. Um, it frustrated me a lot when these stories would quickly go away and there was never any real follow-up with this. And you're looking at only major cities that are just, that are reporting said crimes. Georgia was, the to me, an outlier. Uh, unless it was, wasn't was a murder or six people, six females, six Asian women being murdered, we, we probably wouldn't have heard, heard anything about this. And yet I'm, I'm pretty sure there's crimes being committed against Asian consistently in the Midwest in the South but we're still not hearing anything about that well I, I've heard you I've heard you say that uh, crimes against Asians are underreported now when you say underreported do you mean by the media or do you mean underreported in that they don't get reported to the police I would say it's underreported by the media when crimes are being committed at a, say the most common crime that I can uh, relate to is small businesses such as liquor stores such as mini marts um, small restaurants a lot of those crimes that are being targeted by um, criminals aren't reported as crimes of hate crime, but it's reported as crime of opportunity. You, you were you were about close to 40 years old. Um, was there this sort of hatred toward Asians demonstrated to you before COVID, before it, the president was calling it the Kung flu or whatever it was? Um, or is this just something that happened after the pandemic hit? Oh, this happened in the 80s. Uh, the Japanese Japanese bashing, uh, definitely, I felt that uh, because my parents were scared and I didn't understand why they were scared uh, to see Japanese cars being smashed at dealerships uh, in, I would say, the 85 to 89 era. Even having kind of a side note with this, when a baseball player by the name of Hideo Nomo came to the Dodgers, being one of the first Asian players to ever play in the uh, major leagues, there was a lot of racist context that was being portrayed there. So when I was playing sports, I would be compared to Hideo Nomo and then made fun of as oh there's that Asian Nomo player you know or wannabe player so this is not a, a new new experience for me and since I grew up in Huntington Beach or in Orange County I um there was a skinhead group uh that I encountered and again I've never felt scared living where I live but when I encountered these two gentlemen uh and they got we got into a fight um I didn't understand their context or why they wanted to attack me specifically one of the things that I heard you mention I remember you mentioning during our conversation was who we've seen in many of these videos that have uh, been released by the media. What we have seen, though, are these attacks on the streets, and they are being perpetrated by African Americans. How does that make you feel? There's a lot of frustration that I see if a elderly Asian woman gets beaten up. It doesn't matter if that person is black, if that, per that the attacker is black or attacker is white, if the attacker is elderly versus someone who's um, in their teens, if they're wealthy 
healthy or not. The frustration is that's an elderly person. When I grew up, there's a strong respect for the elderly. Mm -hmm. And when I see this occur, it, it's, it strikes me very, very deeply because that could be my grandmother. That could yeah. be my aunt. That could be my mom. Let me go back to this question, though. And what I'm getting at here is what we've seen predominantly in these videos have been African-Americans. And I know that you said that there have been conversations in your community about these attacks. Have there been conversations that have suggested to you that these attacks are being perpetrated by majority of African-Americans or are others engaged in this as well uh, beyond? Because what we've seen on television, these, you know, aside from the, I think, the shooting in Georgia, the uh, attacks on the streets where people have come up and just assaulted uh, folks on the street have been African-Americans or at least dark brown skinned, black and brown skinned people. Have your community had conversations about this beyond that group of people per perpetrating these attacks? Conversation, I think, really comes down to protect ourselves. Small business owners have more crime committed against them by minorities. But straight out racism and um, just physical attack violence, I've seen that personally more as white against Asians. I, want, there... to, I want to talk about uh, the, the woman in New York um, that was stomped on. I, I don't I, I, to be honest, I have I don't I don't know whether the person who attacked her was black or white. I, I don't. He know. was black. Was okay. I, I don't know. I didn't pay attention to that. What I did see though is then you and I talked about this before, JJ. Is that so? You see something like this happen. What do you do? And Al, this was something that we were talking about. Uh, there, the two doormen who work at the buildings right where she was attacked, both have been fired because they didn't go to her aid. Now, what they did do is the second that that the guy left, they called the police and they went to try to help her out. The question would be, is it a smart thing to run up and try to stop somebody who's clearly uh, angry and possibly on drugs and possibly armed? Uh, and that's where we talked. I think we discussed this maybe last week, JJ, I, I, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, but the, but obviously the the people that, that that own those buildings where the Durman work thinks that's what they should have done. What's your thought on that? I want to say that I would like to believe that people will try to help each other, but it's clearly not the case. And I can't rely on anyone else to to protect me, even though I would be willing to help someone else personally. I, I just if I'm in a strange area and I don't know anyone else, I'm not sure I can ever find um, the Good Samaritans to, to help me out. Whereas if I'm in my own neighborhood, I think I have a good enough rapport with my my, my neighbors to think that they would help me. Mm. Again, I just don't know. Yeah. You know, I want to make clear to everybody that um, uh, the reason I'm asking these questions about who perpetrated these crimes is because uh, it's sickening to me considering uh, what African-Americans have been uh, protesting and essentially trying to get some attention to. The bottom line on this is, as you said, Al, it doesn't matter what race you are from. Um, there's no, you can't, this is not something that's acceptable. You cannot do it. There's no way that you can make this acceptable. Uh, and it is, to me, just heartbreaking that people from the African-American community engage in this kind of behavior. But as we've said before, Chris, racism is not a one-way street. You know, people of all stripes engage in it. Now, 
I know you mentioned you're, you're of Okinawan heritage. And I also remember in this conversation, you talking about what takes place within the Okinawan Japanese community and that it's not all good sometimes. Explain that so that I've got this right. So in Japan, there was a time where Okinawa was um, a separate country. And in the 1600s, Japan uh, acquired Okinawa uh, and became part of their territory. Part of the uh, reasons why I specifically say I'm Okinawan is the Okinawan language is considered a um, endangered language. Uh, very few people can actually speak it or understand it. Um, uh, even within Okinawa, it's uh, the primary language in Okinawa is, is, is Japanese. But there was a time where uh, Japan did not recognize Okinawans as Japanese citizens. And uh, it wasn't until about 1800 that that became accepted as uh, a country to be part of part of Japan as a as part of their own, their empire. Now, fast forward to, to the 1980s, 1990s, um, I had multiple friends of different ethnicities and um, I openly said I'm Japanese, didn't know there was a real difference. And um, one specific incident where I had a, uh, a friend, friendship with a, a Korean family and um, their grandfather, I met the grandfather uh, a year later and he speaks to me in Korean. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean. He asked me what my ethnicity was. And I said, I'm Japanese. And then he spits on me. Oh. And the anger and veracity that he had was he yelled at his grandkids. He goes, you never play with him again oh. because he's the one who killed our people. How do you respond to that at, you know, 13 years old? I left there really upset and tried to talk to my parents about that. And they just said, you know, go away. Don't don't go to them. Just never see them again. And later in high school, I meet, I see them again. And they tell me, you know, grandpa has this anti-Japanese mentality. And I realized that a lot of, a lot more other Asians felt that way too. You know, a lot of that um, anti-Japanese feeling comes out of World War II. So I don't know how old the person was who spit on you, but um, I'm guessing it's probably somebody from the World War II era. Uh, I'm, I say this because my father was a bomber pilot in World War II. He was stationed in the Pacific. Um, he had a, the Americans had a base on Okinawa, maybe still do, and he that's, he flew out of Okinawa. Um, and it, it took a long time after the war. He would never buy a Japanese car, for example. And he he had a, I, I wouldn't say it was a hate against Japanese, but just a he fought a war against the Japanese and he was nearly killed on several occasions. And um, it took him a very long time to kind of get over that. So I think that's what that that older Korean man was probably experiencing, something like that. Eventually, my father went to Japan and loved it and had a wonderful time Eventually, he bought a Japanese car. Eventually, he got over that. But it did take him a while to do it. And it's I think it's understandable in that the Japanese were trying to kill him for the years that he was in the Pacific. So that probably is where that's coming from. Yeah, but that's still, you can't excuse it, though. I mean, Al is 13 years old. No, and my father old. would never have spit on anybody of Japanese. Of yeah, I mean, not, this guy's he's 13 years old, man. Children are children. Of, you of have course. To, of, you have of to course. treat them. People of all ethnicities and backgrounds know that children are sacred. And you just right. don't do things like that to children, regardless of what what's in your heart or what your experience was. And so, Al, I'm sorry you had to go through that, man. Thank you. Where are we in your mind in terms of this country being your home and uh, where we want to be? What's the solution to, to ending all of this violence and hate in your mind? Well, that's a trillion dollar question. Um, well, we we answer we asked them on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to say that, um, you know, we, we have uh, evolved in society, but clearly um, I, I really never really like to say politically wise, one, pol- one politic group is, a political group is more racist or not. But during Trump's administration, 
version, the fact that he would openly state Kung Flu and Rocket Man to the Korean uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, openly yeah, um, it. racism towards those people. How do we evolve? And and people don't follow. Um, and and we just we see more hate rising out of that. I thought at one point when with the the Obama administration that there's a an African American president. Hmm. Wow, this is something I never expected in my lifetime, but it happened. And now we're we're seeing more diversity. I would love to see that this happens further, but is it a fear of change? Is it a fear of um, mixed identities? I, I'm not sure what, what causes the animosity towards people. And I would love to think that the more people actually interact with others and are open, you will see a better result. And from you know the East Coast and West Coast, they tend to have a lot more diversity. And what happens to the people in the middle? Mm-hmm. And those people in the middle, are they the only ones that are expressing um, animosity towards the minorities? No, it happens in the East Coast and the West Coast. But we need to actually see more diversity with each other. Uh, I'm not saying we have to have hire everyone with every specific ethnic race or background, but we've got to we have to come together because this is a, a, a cultural melting pot that that thrives on each other. And the only time I felt the, the America felt really strong as Americans was after 9-11. And at the same token, I also saw people react quickly against the Middle Easterners. Yes, and absolutely. how do you how do you not how do you st- how do you stop others from trying to literally kill minorities or Middle Easterners or even Indians that look like uh, yeah. the Sikh specifically Sikh uh, groups? It's it's yeah. mind numbing, and I would love to see all that just back off and just you know actually interact with each other better. Albert, thank you very much. This has been a terrific interview. Yeah, thank you. Well, JJ, it's interesting what we learned from doing this podcast. I mean, you and I have known Albert for quite some time and did not have an idea about this portion of his past, his family's past. And one of the things about doing this podcast is that you learn that all over the world, there is some sort of pecking order where somebody feels compelled to look down on somebody else for whatever reason. It's sad, but true, um, as Albert's story demonstrates very aptly. Yeah, I agree. Every week we learn something brand new on this show. And um, I, actually, I think this show is rapidly becoming a resource for, for that kind of for that kind of knowledge. You know, we talked with Mr. Echo Hawk not too long ago, and he told us this story about how people thought Native Americans were extinct. The story from Kimmy Yam about about the railroad. So this is rapidly becoming a go to historical source. JJ, we always tell people we'd like to hear from them, and they can email us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. And that's what Mike did. I won't give his last name because he didn't say I could. Uh, He said, you and JJ do a great job discussing the issue of race. However, my resolve is increased with further evidence that there is no escape from this chaos. And it seems to me that it's spiraling out of control. I'm even more resolved to stay out of the fray. What you and JJ are doing is admirable as it seems to, as it seems there is no longer any other reason civil discord other than colors in our society. Sports at one time was a refuge for the trials and tribulations of our daily lives. Now MLB has jumped into the fray with removal of the All-Star game from Atlanta. I have read how Georgia's new law is Jim Crow on steroids. I find these comments disgusting. This argument presents that minorities, black and brown people, are not able to obtain a form of government-issued identification in order to vote. Why not? I've never heard the answer to that question. Is it a lack of ability? Is it economic? 
I believe that if an alien came to Earth tomorrow, by the end of the day, the alien would think we're all wing nuts. Thanks to you and JJ for working to be the voices of reason in this forest of insanity. For all the best, Mike. You know, so, uh, thoughts about that. I'm very grateful to hear from him on that because there are times when I do ask myself, what am I doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you know, because, you know, they're just things that happen. And you need that kind of reinforcement from people. Um, you know, it may seem like we got this all under control, and we do. But, you know, it really is important to know that there are people who actually benefit from this work, Chris. Yeah, I agree. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Burlington, Vermont it's more than 80% white. The last time I was called the N-word was in 1996 in Mankato, Minnesota, and I remember it because you remember stuff like that. Here in Vermont is more a frequent uh, word that is tossed in my direction. Taisha Green, as you may have surmised, is an African-American, and she's not just a resident of Burlington, Vermont, she is the Director of Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging for the city. I get a lot of support from white community members, but I would say 20 to 30% of the time, I get very negative comments from the white community um, who don't appreciate my, my presence in their state. Like it or not, she's there to stay. And on June 19th, there's going to be a special celebration. I started on a journey to bring Juneteenth to Burlington um, because it might be 80 plus percent white, but the rest of the people are not. Oh, and by the way, she's from Minneapolis, a story you won't want to miss. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go. But before we do, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Karen Hicks, Rob Stallworth, Marvin Worthy, Julie Steinberg, Kevin Johnson, Vanessa Cook, Emily Passer, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Gina Bazemore, Sean Anderson, people all across America who are not afraid to step out of their comfort zone and make a new friend that doesn't look like them. This week, thanks for our musicians, Cosmic, Jesse Gallagher, and Offshane. And most of all, on top of everything, we thank you for listening. And as always, remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.